2: Life is
0: a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
1: of a detour. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or tick it. Paid for by NHTSA.
0: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. Millie Cawthorne. The guest on today's episode is Vanessa Harding, Professor of London History at Birkbeck University of London, who also wrote a feature for the June issue of BBC History magazine on the Great Plague of 1665. World Histories editor Matt Elton spoke to her about how people understood and coped with the pandemic and the lessons it might hold for us today in the midst of the coronavirus crisis
3: how familiar were people with the plague before 1665 and why is that year's outbreak known as the Great Plague?
4: 1665 is known to posterity as the Great Plague because of its magnitude. It is the biggest, the most deadly epidemic, um, apart from the first 14th century um, eruption of plague into into England. Uh, So it is is the big one. Um, but it's also the Great Plague or thought of as the Great Plague because it's the last one. It is the last uh, major epidemic of plague uh, in this country, the last epidemic of plague in this country, uh, and that people looking back tend to see that as being the marker. As for what people know about or knew about plague, they had, I think, a lot of, a lot of shared history, a lot of shared understanding of what it was, um, that it has been around for 300 years by 1665. It may not have been very recent. Uh, There may not have been a very recent epidemic, Um, but people do have familiarity with the idea. They they know there is something called plague. They believe they know how it works and what you have to do about it. So it's quite easy to call on this shared knowledge, this shared understanding to, uh, to develop practical responses to it.
3: Is it also because um, there are more records or more sources available from this particular outbreak?
4: Yes, yes. This is the one that we can see best, Um, not least, of course, because of Samuel Pepys, whose diary takes us day by day through that, Um, and that, that Pepys is an amazing read just to see how somebody's responding on that. But we also have other people writing letters or keeping personal memoirs at this time in a way that wasn't the case even 100 years before. And that we have quite a lot of records of government, um, both national government, the city's government, uh, and parish government, local government, um, which is where a lot of the actions to deal with plague actually take place.
3: Um, and how bad was this outbreak and when did it reach its peak?
4: The outbreak starts in about, or first really visible in about April, um, and it builds up very. Uh, very steeply to its peak in mid-September there's a week in mid-September when about 7,000 people die uh, and that that uh, it doesn't stay at that high level for more than a couple of weeks and then it begins to tail off again so that by December while there are still plague deaths um, scattered across the city uh, the epidemic is effectively over.
3: Did it affect certain geographical areas more than others as well?
4: It seems to be much worse in the immediate ring of suburbs. So not in the city centre around St. Paul's and Royal Exchange and so on, but in the parishes a little further out, uh, like um, Oldgate, like Cripplegate, um, towards uh, Hoburn, somewhere towards the west, like St. Martin the Fields. Those are areas that are very severely hit, uh, partly because they are um, uh, densely settled uh, with, with poor people.
3: Given that this wasn't the first incidence of this kind of plague, what uh, measures did the government attempt to use to tackle it? Um, and what resources did they draw on from those past past examples?
4: Because plague has been around for quite a long time, and there is a lot of exchange of information between local government and central government, and central government is looking at other places, other countries, uh, they have a kind of playbook of what they should do. Um, there's a series of uh, orders or ordinances known as the plague orders or the plague books or directors, directions uh, and that those are called into play or, or become part of the uh, action plan once deaths reach a certain level like sort of 30 or 40 de- plague deaths a week and that those cover an enormously wide range of uh, behavioral, environmental, um, uh, structural things that, that people should and should not do. In terms of the resources, uh, I mean, it's partly the human resources that they they draw on things that already exist. So local government plays the largest part in this. Um, Parishes have always been the place where obviously people are buried, um, so that they are used to counting the dead and reporting the numbers of dead. Um, They're used to burying the dead. Uh, But parishes have also been responsible for the distribution of poor relief, um, for support for... Uh, people who can't support themselves. And that becomes a major, um, a major job during the plague epidemic is that once quarantine is imposed, uh, local governments do their best to support households that are locked up that can't get out to earn money or to buy food.
3: So there was already by this point, quite a well oiled infrastructure to try to deal with this kind of thing.
4: Yes, I think, I think people know what they should be doing um, and that a lot of the arguments about what you should do have been rehearsed in the past and discussed more widely. That doesn't mean there aren't tensions between central government, which tends to talk about a more interventionist and controlling uh, set of actions, and local government, which recognizes that you can only go so far, you can't coerce, you can only um, persuade um, or influence
3: which leads me to my next question, actually, is, and that's how much did people follow uh, the guidelines that were set out? Was there a lockdown like we have at the moment?
4: There wasn't a universal lockdown. What uh, the, the way it worked was that once a household or an individual is known to be infected, um, once there is a report of plague, there is an inspector or a searcher sent, uh, once there is a plague death in a household, and that household is locked up. But it, it doesn't mean that... Um, that other households in the same street um, will be locked up as well, only when plague cases have been confirmed uh, in particular households. It looks as though that works up to a point, but there is obviously a kind of weariness sets in after a time. And there's quite a lot of resistance to the notion that because one person has plague in a household, the others are all going to be essentially locked up there until they get plague and die. So there are there are well-recorded cases of people breaking um, quarantine, breaking out of the houses which are supposed to be locked up, um, escaping out of the back doors or whatever, uh, or even attacking the people who are set to watch the houses. And I think it has to be the case has to be said that um, you know the resources for imposing um, a forcible quarantine and lockdown simply aren't there. I mean, you know, there's no way, in the circumstances, that they could impose that. Uh, that they could get have the manpower or the money to afford it
3: okay so um how how much of an understanding of what was happening that we have today did people at the time have of the kind of things they had to do or not do to stop it spreading, or indeed what was happening more generally?
4: They had a fairly clear understanding um, or set of beliefs about what it was, um, and I suppose the first thing to say is that in a, in a time of universal faith people believed it was a divine visitation of some kind. But that didn't stop them also thinking in practical, medical, epidemiological terms. So they also speculated about where it came from. Um, And the most common set of beliefs is that it's a kind of miasma, that it's in the air, that it's spread. uh, It's obviously spread from person to person because, or they believe it is spread from person to person, because uh, one of the regulations is about banning assemblies and groups of people meeting together. Uh how, how it comes about, I mean, whether it um, uh, arises from corruption, uh, from foul smells, from whether it's created by the, the weather or the planets or something like that, there are lots of different theories about that. Um, but it's definitely perceived to be something that is spread in the atmosphere. But it can also, they obviously also think that it, or believe that it can be spread in goods, Um, or where people have been. They don't seem too worried about dead bodies, but they are worried about things like the sheets and the bedding and the clothing of people who've died of plague. Uh, So you're not allowed to sell those on in in the second-hand market. Um, uh, uh, The quarantining of goods may well be to do with this sense that it might be spread once a pack of goods is opened, that the, the, the plague might have been trapped in it and might get out. And there are things like saying that hackney carriages which have taken people who then proved to have plague mustn't be used again for another week or so. So there is definitely that sense that, that, um, that there's a causative factor, uh, that, that you can catch it under certain circumstances and not under others. But there's also um, a sense that it's the individual body that may or may not resist it. So the first set of prescriptions about what you might do not the plague orders but the ones about about health are that you should try not to catch it you know you should be resistant to it um, you should uh, avoid places where you might catch it um, but you should also as it were try to get your body in good order uh, to make sure that it's not susceptible to um, to the ingress of this of this plague whatever this plague is
3: you mentioned uh, plague orders there what do we mean mm. by that term?
4: This is what I call the playbook, a set of rules that are imposed that talk about environmental regulation, that ban assemblies, that, for example, say that people mustn't gather at, whether it's theatres or public houses or things like that. It's about clearing the streets. It's about burning rubbish. It's about stopping animals from wandering in the street. A whole range of things like that.
3: Um, going back to the idea of how much people understood, I w- I'm interested in the idea that there's certain jobs. Um, so, for example, we we're talking about the searchers and the corpse bearers. Did people did people volunteer for those jobs at times of plague or was that just their job? And how did they feel about um, having those kind of risky occupations? Do we know?
4: I think we have to say it's the kind of thing you do because you can't afford not to. So, I mean, the searchers are very commonly people who are pensioners of the parish, That's to say they're receiving support from the parish and in return they're asked to do jobs for the parish. Um, Searchers tend to be older women who've often probably had a lot of practice in sick nursing and are therefore good at looking at bodies or sick people to understand what's going on. Um, The corpse bearers also are likely to be poor people um, who are glad to have that employment. So although individuals may not particularly want to do these things, uh, nevertheless, it is a way of making a living in an epidemic, um, and when parishes lose them to the plague, as they do, there's usually a number of people ready to take on the on the post. So it isn't that people won't do these jobs, um, but they will do them because they because they have no option really.
3: Um, and expanding that point slightly, do we know how people reacted to this outbreak more generally? You mentioned peeps at the start. What records can we use to find out how people responded? Um, to this
4: it it tends to, well Pepys's diary is the most extraordinary and unique uh, record um, Pepys is not at all typical he's a young healthy um, upwardly mobile uh, individual with a quite a confident worldview um, and, and a very positive outlook so he's uh, really not bothered by it for quite a long t- period of time and he's quite slow to take actions that might help him or his family it's not until uh, plague is also geographically um, very marked that it starts in one part of London and then spreads to others. So it's not really till the plague gets close to where he lives that he uh, responds and starts to think about moving his family away, um, decides it's time he, ma- he, made, he makes his will again or makes a new will, those sorts of things. There are letters and correspondence from people who are in London during the plague. There are some other personal writings of various kinds. Um, and there's also information. Contained within the local records, um, the parish records or the city's records or the government's records, which may tell you something about people's attitudes um, and how they're responding. I mean, there very often will be things like petitions for support or help or something like that. So they can can give you some sense of the circumstances. Um, But but the kind of introspective reflection that maybe we're all doing right now about what does this mean, um, there's not a lot of that to be found.
3: People just had to get on with what they were doing, I suppose.
4: Yeah, yeah, I they do now. And how much
3: was this, for some people, just another outbreak of something they'd experienced before?
4: I think that there is, while there is a kind of, both at, at, at government level and at the popular level, there is a kind of folk knowledge of plague. Um, there's a familiarity with it. Uh, for most people, the 1665 plague is the first one they've experienced for quite a number of years, Um, the, the last important, the last serious epidemic had been in 1636 when something like 10,000 people died of plague. Um, and the most serious one before that was 1625. So not many people had actually lived through that period. I mean, some had obviously, um, but, but for many people and particularly since London is a city of migrants, um, 1665 will be the first major plague they've experienced. Again, there's this kind of um, folk memory because uh, although there are a number of epidemic years, there are also a number of periods when plague is around and two or three thousand people die every year. So between 1636 and about 1648, um, there is an ongoing phase in which two to three thousand people die of plague every year. But that's very localized. So that for lots of people, it's almost as though that wasn't happening. Uh, it's if it stays in the poorer parts of London, then those who are in charge um, are not particularly bothered by it. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So there's a tension between historians who look at one kind of evidence, epidemiologists who look at another, um, and neither of us are terribly good at really understanding the critical difficulties of the other's modes of explanation.
1: And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches.
0: But there's only one Met Crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about
3: this juicy gem
2: of a detour.
3: You mentioned uh, peeps debating whether to stay or whether to leave. Was there a spate of people just leaving their homes and going elsewhere then?
4: Uh, yes, quite a lot of people leave London. Uh, but they have to be relatively well off and they have to have somewhere to go. So the court leaves London, goes to Oxford, um, the aristocracy leave London, the gentry, the people who are there who might see themselves as only part of the time Londoners anyway. Uh, many middling Londoners um, or upper middling Londoners might have um, a country house in somewhere like Hackney uh, which at that time was quite rural. But for middling and poorer people, they really have um, no option they have nowhere to go they're not going to be welcomed anywhere. Uh, Indeed, they're going to be strongly resisted by places that that fear they may be bringing the plague, as indeed they may be. Uh, So that people are supposed to have passports of health before they move. Um, And they also obviously need to have the resources to do so. So one of the reasons so many people stay in London and die in London is that they have no means of making a living anywhere else.
3: Um, and what scenes might we uh, witness if we were to travel back to London in this time and walk its streets? I mean, what, what kind of things would we see as a result of this um, outbreak?
4: That's a very difficult question. There's a whole um, genre of plague paintings, which are mostly sort of Victorian dramas of, you know, a child being handed out of a window to somebody else or of the dead carts going around. Uh, I think again, the you know the best thing we can do is to follow those who are writing at the time, and the impression you get from peeps is that there are quite a lot of people around on the streets, um, even you know even at the height of the plague, um, it's emptier than it would be. There is there is no business going on at the Royal Exchange, for example, um, but the city is not absolutely deserted. There are not supposed to be uh, burials during the daytime, but by August the nights are too short to bury all the dead. So there are funerals taking place in daytime. I think one thing that comes out in a number of uh, writers is the ringing of church bells. I mean, London has over 100 parish churches. Uh, They're all experiencing some deaths. Um, Some parishes are experiencing several deaths a day or dozens of deaths a day. Uh, And if the church bells are ringing, even for only a small proportion of those, then there must have been an almost incessant clamour Of bells tolling, and that that seems to be quite a a strong impression that people have um, is hearing the bells.
3: As well as turning to religion and to spirituality, did people try to draw on medical or pseudo medical cures to help uh, manage the outbreak?
4: Yes, Uh, one of the things that's really striking is there's an enormous outpouring of cheap print, uh, so that people are publishing remedies or advertisements for. Uh, For patent medicines, patent remedies, uh, there's a very popular series of um, sort of commemorative plague uh, pamphlets or broadsheets, which will uh, commonly combine a dramatic picture, uh, uh, a prayer, some information about previous plagues and some guidance as to how you might either either prevent yourself from getting it or cure it. Uh, if you had it. So there's a lot of people jump into that field, um, either because they are printers with, with uh, print to sell or because they are um, apothecaries or medical practitioners with cures to sell as well.
3: Uh, and uh, what kind of remedies has people concoct or were encouraged to try?
4: It's, it's an enormous range. Um, uh, different people have different views as to what might be good for it. Um, this uh, uh nonconformist clergyman, John Allen, um, is absolutely obsessed with a sort of alga um, that he thinks is going to be uh, can be found. I mean, it's, it's one that sort of grows in the streets after after rainfall and he believes that it's going to be tremendously helpful. I think that's an unusual um, obsession. Uh, the others are are all the other remedies are made up of a whole just a whole range of things, depending on what your perspective on medicine is, whether you believe in. Uh, that chemicals and minerals are the right way to go, or whether you um, have the more traditional Galenic view of the body, which is the four humours, so that you need to rebalance those humours uh, with if you're too cold, you need something to warm you, if you're too wet, you need something to dry, and so on. So it's really hard to say that there's anything, um, any common pattern to uh, to the plague remedies that you find.
3: But that interestingly reflects the sort of duelling notions of of medicine and how to deal with these kind of things that was present at the time, I suppose.
4: Yes, yes. The, 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 there isn't a single thought about how it, about what it is, or how it should be, how it should be dealt with. Yes.
3: Um, once the outbreak had gone past its peak in September, when did it start um, kind of reducing, and um, when did things start going back to normal? Or indeed, was there a new normal afterwards?
4: The deaths start declining uh, from mid-September, and we have the weekly Bills of Mortality, which publish the figures um, of deaths and plague deaths parish by parish every week. Um, And those are a really important source, both for us, but they're obviously very popular at the time. So Pepys is always saying how he's read such and such a number for this week, and he reports, um, thank goodness, you know, the numbers are going down, they're going down again, they're continuing to go down. Uh, So that it falls off quite sharply. And by December, the numbers are really quite small. But as I say, you know, there's still probably another couple of thousand plague deaths to come even by December. The difficulty in knowing about what is the new normal um, is the the fire the following year, um, which obviously completely upends everything. Uh, but it also destroys some of the records that might tell us more about the plague, um, so that people haven't really picked up the pieces of their lives and or, or the or their businesses um, or local local government um, by uh, by September 1666. The people who'd left London uh, really seem to start coming back by October or November. That might that may be a bit early, um, uh, and because plague is still is still around. Um, but I think probably most people who would normally spend the winter in London probably have come back by by Christmas or January.
3: Are there any sort of popular modern conceptions of this outbreak or this period that you think we need to rethink?
4: I think there are two main um, conceptions or misconceptions that we should think about. Uh, many people have uh, have been told or or have learned uh, that the fire cleanses London of plague, and that's why there isn't another outbreak. Um, and that's that. That can't be true because if you simply overlaid a map of which parts of London were burnt in 1666 and the which parts of London were worst hit for, by plague in 1665, they simply don't match. It's the city centre that's burnt out in 66. It's the suburbs that are worst hit in 65. So you know, th- th- there's a simple answer to that one. And I suppose the second side of that might be to say that actually, if the city centre is burnt out, Uh, that might surely increase uh, overcrowding in the suburbs and make things worse. So I think the reason there isn't another plague is because it's receding from Europe at this time. Um, And it may be that by the time there is another uh, ingress into the European mainland in the 1720s, that quarantine is sufficiently good to prevent it spreading much further. The other thing we have to think about in relation to plague is what the disease is. Uh, And there's there's a long and complicated history to this uh, for, you know, the first uh, few hundred years. People had all these different ideas about what it was. In the late 19th century, uh, the outbreak of the third pandemic in uh, East Asia uh, seems to have led to the identification of Yersinia pestis as the agent and of rats and uh, rat fleas as the way in which it was spread. And then over the 20th century, there was a a complicated feedback from epidemiological theory about bubonic plague saying, oh, well, this is how it must have been in the medieval and early modern periods. But there was also reason to say, well, actually, it's not really working quite like the modern plague. Um, Maybe it's not bubonic plague. That that argument went on quite fiercely for quite a while. Uh, And I would say that it's now got to the point of saying because... Uh, archaeology has revealed um, ancient DNA of Yersinia pestis in burials from plague periods across Europe. So it's definitely Yersinia pestis, but I think there's still a big question mark about rats and fleas and whether that was actually the way in which it was spread, whether that could allow it to spread as rapidly to transmit in the way that it actually did. So there's a tension between... Historians who look at one kind of evidence, epidemiologists who look at another, um, and neither of us are terribly good at really understanding the critical difficulties of the other's modes of explanation.
3: We're obviously uh, talking now in the middle of a pandemic. Um, can we meaningfully draw parallels or lessons from this period, or is to do so to kind of reduce it to a simple analogy that's not helpful?
4: It's always difficult to draw Draw lessons from history. Um, I think, I think what I would take from this is how very complex epidemics are. That they're not just about disease; they're about social structures, um, they're about policies, they're about attitudes, uh, the relationships between different classes or between the governors and the governed, and that the actual outcomes in any particular way are in any particular situation are very very contingent on this whole range of factors that go into them. I suppose the other thing I would say, I mean, reading these, reading contemporary writers and so on, is that you do begin to think in terms of of what is good behaviour in an epidemic, you know, who is behaving well. We now um, feel quite strongly about the people who throw their servants out on the street um, or who abandon the town without... Uh, without leaving any help for those who they left behind or indeed uh, about those who refuse to take people in or reject them or whatever so we do we do think about what it is to behave in a in a decent human way um, in an epidemic
3: are there any sources from the time that particularly stand out for you or human stories that particularly stand out
4: well, again, I would go back to Peeps. I mean, because Pepys is now accessible, anybody can read um, him on various websites online. Uh, beyond that, you have to go a bit, a bit further. But a good many letters and sources of individuals uh, writing at this time are available if you want to plunge um, a bit more deeply.
3: Um, finally then, how would you like people to um, re-understand this particular plague and this particular period Perhaps particularly in light of all that's going on at the moment,
4: I would like them to reflect on the fact that disease has played an enormous part in human uh, human history. Um, we've been enormously lucky in uh, in the West, in in uh, the global North, in the last for the last half century or so, not having any major um, epidemics or or impact upon us. So I think it's it pushes us back to a stage in which realising that life is more dangerous, more uncertain, um, the future much less predictable than we had become accustomed to thinking.
0: That was Vanessa Harding. Vanessa wrote a feature about the Great Plague for BBC History magazine. You can read that in our June issue, which is on sale now. That issue also includes a special feature for the magazine's 20th anniversary – on 20 of history's greatest mysteries, as well as articles on Europe's last battle of World War II, Thomas Cromwell and the Crusades. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us next on Sunday for an episode on everything you need to know about the English Reformation.